poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is an elite cash game combatant who's also a world-class poker coach, Patrick Howard. Pat's the younger brother of Poker Detox founder and one of my personal favorite CPG guests of all time, Nick Howard. In my personal opinion, Poker Detox is the gold standard of staking groups. The way they've been able to scale and effectively slash efficiently coach up pretty much any player into becoming a consistent winning cash game player is next level impressive. And you may not know this, but Pat has been incredibly influential in Poker Detox's sustained success as their behind-the-scenes strategy architect. The first course Pat created was Ether, which generated six figures in sales on the public market and was a springboard to Mobius, the mandatory private course all Detox members treat like their personal money-printing poker bible. On my personal mental list of the most influential and impactful coaches in all of poker, Patrick Howard is easily in my top three. With that said, today is all about Patrick's twisty, turny origin story into the world of poker, and in today's show, you're going to learn why $6 is all that separated Pat's massive success from soul-crushing failure, a submitted question from rabid CPG podcast listener Nick H. inquiring about Pat's thoughts on aliens, the power of finding simplicity on the other side of complexity, and much, much more. And before you dive into today's episode with Patrick Howard, I'd like to say a few words on behalf of the sponsor of CPG, me. If you love the podcast and want to support my content creation habit, there are a few real easy things you can do. Firstly, if you've never had an account on poker platform Bovada and you live in the USA, head to freenuffle.com where you can follow a few simple instructions. It only takes a few minutes, I pinky promise. You can get access to my $199 course, Neutralize Flop Leads, and do your part in keeping this train rolling. Secondly, you can head to cpgmerch.com where you can buy a Chasing Poker Greatness branded hat or shirt and rep your favorite poker podcast in your favorite local card room. And finally, you can head to greatnessvillage.com where you can opt in to the CPG newsletter and level up your poker network by plugging into a community that includes a mix of hobbyists looking to take control of their poker destiny, hungry aspiring poker pros, and elite cash game crushers. Those links are freenuffle.com, that's F-R-E-E-N-U-F-F-L-E.com, cpgmerch.com, and greatnessvillage.com. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you the brilliant and wise beyond his years, Patrick Howard. Patrick, welcome to the show, my friend. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I've this has been a long time coming. Um, had your brother on many times, and you know, really enjoyed our conversations at the Detox Street in Atlanta. Like, it's like it was only like 14 or 15 months ago, but it feels like another lifetime ago. 
Yeah, we met under some pretty intense circumstances. Right. Like we we literally (laughs) met the day the shit really hit the fan with COVID. Right. I remember I met you at the player's Airbnb and it was like, it was the first day where everybody was getting like very concerned and it was weird. Like you didn't know if you'd shake people's hands. Yes. I mean, we were doing like exactly, (laughs) we were, we were doing exactly what you're not supposed to do. Right. (laughs) A bunch of people traveling. (laughs) You're traveling. You didn't know if you could like get a flight back. Like if you're going to be stuck in Atlanta, like I remember like I walked into the, into the house and like Landon was there playing and you know, we did like one of these like awkwards, like should we shake hands or like, like we just like, fuck it, just shake hands. Like (laughs) nobody's wearing a mask. Like we were, yeah, it was like one month later and like everything had changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember we all sat around the TV and watched Trump give his address at the white house. And there was just so much uncertainty in the air it was just such a weird time it was but for on the poker side for me the one thing that i'm very grateful and thankful for you guys for you specifically is the mass data research that you did and like opening my eyes to a different way to think and study and train people to play poker has just been like invaluable for me personally because it was the first like it was the first real methodology that I heard about that I thought, oh, this makes more sense to me than anything else that I've ever heard as it relates to poker training ever. Yeah. it. I mean, I feel the same way. I, I can't really imagine studying poker in any other way. It just seems crazy to me. Uh, this is just the approach that I gravitate toward naturally. I'm a major data nerd and you know, it just it's worked for us. I'm glad that's working for you too. <laughs> yeah, I I wasn't a major data nerd. Like, I, so like when I first started playing, it was all about like analyzing my own database, which was like huge for me in 2005. Like that was what I spent all my time doing. But then I learned like, oh, I am a data nerd. Like I love looking at this and trying to like fit the puzzle pieces together and come up with something that like makes sense and maximizes EV across the board based on like what humans are actually doing. It just, it makes way too much sense to me. And it's very weird. You know, we were talking in our pre-conversation how very few people have approached poker training in this way. It just seems kind of odd to me. Yeah, it is very weird. And I often feel like I'm like the first one to find this goldmine of information. And I don't really know how many other people are out there doing this type of work. It's hard in poker because people don't always you know, say publicly what they're doing, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot. I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts and people talking about poker and, you know, the 90% of the stuff that I spend my day doing, I don't hear people talking too much about. So it is kind of that feeling like, you know, something that other people don't know. (laughs) And it's a good feeling. And it's hilarious that like, you know, Nick just tweets about it. Like Nick will just like tweet out shit. Like, Today, I hope today's the day that you realize that regs overfold in three bet pots by 13%, yeah. right? And I, just, I just look at that and I'm like, fuck, he's, he's, he's selling the truth. And like people just aren't even, it's not even on their radars. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the downside of it is 
like most things in data, the results are extremely counterintuitive. And like the way you have to play if you want to take advantage of this information is scary and feels like you're spewing and just punting a lot. So like there are a lot of people, I think, even if you gave them this information and even if they knew that it was like technically right, they would still talk themselves out of using it in game because of just the risk aversion that we all deal with. And some people just aren't cut out to like truly put full 100% faith and trust in the data and play that way. Yeah, it's like a, it's a performance failure. It's not even like a exit. It's just a performance failure, right? Like, and I mean that, that follows so many poker players around where like even, you know, they'll go through like preflop bootcamp and then post hands where they just mess it up horribly. And I'm like, why did you do that? Like you, you got like a, a 95 on the final exam and this is like very basic. How did you mess this up? And like, there's just a real difference between knowing what you're supposed to do and doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. But I don't have to tell you that. That's what Nick spends like probably 99% of his life trying to like, that's the bridge he tries to, the gap that he tries to bridge. Yeah, I mean, just like getting people to not overfold is one of the hardest things. It's like what I spend <laughs> so much of my time thinking about and doing. <laughs> right. It's, uh, anyway, we'll, uh, getting into the weeds a little bit here, but um, the way that I typically start this show off is by asking you about your story and, you know, how did you get involved into this crazy world of playing cards? I was sort of just born into it. I've, I've actually never talked about this publicly before, but I had a whole poker career before my current poker career. From age like 11 to 15, I was pretty much like a mid-stakes grinder online and played heavily with my brother's influence, obviously. But I guess to take a step even further back, my grandfather was huge into cards and he taught me how to play five card draw when I was like three or four years old. I have a picture of us playing together when I was four and I think we might've even started earlier than that. And I just was so into it from the beginning. Like those are some of my fondest memories from childhood, not just because I was spending quality time with my grandfather, but because it was like actually competitive. Like I was really thinking about the game and trying to win. And I think he saw that and he really enjoyed it. So we, we would just like play endlessly. So I think it's kind of funny that like, you know, before I knew how to read, I knew that like a full house beat a, a flush or a straight. <laughs> yeah, that's, see, I have similar experiences playing like penny ante seven card stud with my grandparents, my, my dad and my uncles. And, and I had to be like five years old. And like, I vividly remember like, you know, and my grandpa like knew all the lingo, like, uh, oh, it's down and dirty and like all this. So it's like, he'd, he'd obviously played somewhere like from like a very conservative, like <laughs> Christian background who like, doesn't really like the gambling. He had obviously mm -hmm. been playing cards somewhere to like, know, you know, just all the vernacular in poker. But I remember, I've just always been a human that's loved games and that poker just it resonated with me massively from a young age as well. And, and then you said, how, how much older is Nick than you? Nick's five years older than me. So Nick's five years older than you. So Nick, 
was it Nick's influence that led you to playing online at 11 years old? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a crazy story. But so basically, the way it started was Nick um, started playing pitch and also like small no limit hold'em cash games with his high school friends in our in the basement of our house. And we like we had a card table and they would just play. Um, and I had always really liked poker, and I just like remember so vividly those poker nights. I was just so into it. I have this very distinct memory of I would like come home on a, a weekend after like playing outside with my friends and I would see cars in the driveway of our house. So I would know that Nick had his buddies over and then I would walk into the house and I would listen for this sound and I would go to the basement. And even before I like opened the door to the basement, I would hear the sound of chips shuffling and I would just go crazy. Like <laughs> my heart rate would just skyrocket and I would just run downstairs and I would watch them play. And I would like beg my parents to give me $5 to play in the games. And sometimes they would, and I would always lose. And I would, you know, throw temper tantrums and cry. Like I did not handle losing well at all. And, um, Eventually, my parents said, "Like, look, you know, this isn't fun for you. Like, you have to stop playing. Like, there's no more money. You can't play poker with Nick and his friends anymore because you just you get too upset when you lose." And I, I disagreed, obviously, but you know, I didn't have any money, so I couldn't play. But I would, I would still, like, any time they played, I would be there watching, and I would be so just transfixed by the game. Like I always liked poker. And then as soon as money got involved, it was just like over for me. I was obsessed. So the way that I ended up getting into online was Nick had started playing a little bit online. Could you, what uh, year was this? This would have been 2003. So pre-Money Maker. Yeah, just like right before that boom. Right before it, cool. Um, and I was, I'm 29 now. So I, this was like just after my 11th birthday. So there was this one night where Nick was in a tournament on Full Tilt and he gets this call from his high school friends that there's like a party that he wants to go to. And I don't know what I was doing. I was just like in the basement with him. So he's still in this tournament and he's like nowhere near cashing. So he looks over to me and he, he says, Pat, um, I'm in this $10 tournament um, and I have to go, but you can play if you want. And I'll give you half of whatever you win if you cash. And this was like a pretty big tournament. And he was, I, I don't think he even thought that I would cash. So I'm like, yes, obviously. <laughs> this is like my dream. <laughs> right. I think I had played online for play money before. So like I knew how the buttons worked and everything. So I sit down and I start playing this tournament. And I don't actually remember a single hand that I played in the tournament. The next memory that I have is many, many hours later, Nick comes back from his party and he walks up to the computer at the basement. I'm still playing. <laughs> A good sign. And he's like, you're still in? I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm still in. And we were three-handed at the final table. Um, and this was like a pretty big tournament. There was like, I, I don't remember exactly how much was first place, but it was like something like $5,000. So... He's like, holy shit. He's just like, move over. I'm going to start playing. 
Um, so he starts playing, and I think we were the short stack when he took over, so I can't blame him for busting, but we ended up busting in third. Yeah, so he lets you, t- he lets you get down a three-handed yeah, and yeah. just takes it from you. Uh, yeah. But anyway, we won like $1,500 that night, so we split it 50-50, and that was how I started my bankroll online. <laughs> and I, as every like seasoned gambler knows very well, the, the very worst thing that can happen to you is you have a big score the first time you gamble because you just think that's going to continue that way. And of course, it's not going to continue that way. So I took this 750 and I started playing 25 cent, 50 cent, six max, low limit, no limit cash games. Like party poker? And, party poker days? No, this was all on full tilt. Full tilt? Was mm-hmm. full tilt around then? Man, that's... Yeah. Ah, that's crazy that they were around. Uh, I forgot. I thought that they cropped up like in the late 20... Like 2007 or 8, but... No, it was definitely on full tilt. Um, but anyway, I started playing these cash games and I just like immediately started losing. And, you know, I lost like a hundred and then a few hundred. And then I lost the entire 750 that I made in the tournament. And then I made a really, really big mistake, which was I kept playing on the account with money that was not mine. (laughs) Because Nick had like something like a thousand or 1500 more sitting (laughs) in this account. Yeah. And so I just kept playing and I just kept losing. And to this day, like I was thinking about it before I came on this podcast. I'm not really sure if I was just running terribly or if I was actually playing really badly. Because, like, you know, if you're a small winner in cash games, you can easily go on a 20 to 40 buy and downswing. It's not unheard of at all. Even if you have like a decent edge in the games, you can you can do that. And I was really trying like very hard to to win in these games. And I was thinking about the game. And I remember Nick had a card runners account. Uh, do you remember card runners? I was a card uh, runners coach briefly. Yeah. Really? <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. So he had one of these accounts and he showed me like, you can go on the site and there's like guys videotaping themselves playing poker and explaining their thought process. So I was watching Taylor KB also known as Green Plastics, his videos, and also Muddy Waters. And I remember like very vividly watching these videos and being so into them. Like I just remember this feeling that I got watching these videos because these guys were playing like 2-4, 3-6 on Ultimate Bat usually. And they were explaining their thought process in a really simple way. And they were just kind of like talking through what they were doing and they just were making it look so easy. And I remember just like hanging on their every word during these videos and like really just trying to absorb everything that they were saying and like trying to actually mimic how they played when I was playing. But anyway, I just kept losing. And uh, I remember this one day where... Nick came down while I was like playing a session on the computer. And he asked me like, dude, I know you've been playing a lot. Like what's going on? I checked the account. It looks pretty low. And I'm like, yeah, there's like a few hundred dollars left in the account. And he, he gave me this really stern talking to like, 
look, this isn't, this wasn't your money to play with. Like you, you have to figure out a way to pay me back. You can't just lose this money. And I got like really upset. And ultimately we agreed that if I could keep playing, but if I busted the account, I would have to go tell our parents what had happened and figure Ooh. out a way to pay Nick back. Yeah. I think he, he just figured like, well, there's like a few hundred bucks left. So just let him play it out. Cause he's, he's, <laughs> he clearly <laughs> thinks he can turn this around. Yeah. He's a DJ now. He's, <laughs> he's got to go for it. <laughs> so I remember this one day where I'm sitting at the computer and I'm, I have the cashier balance open and I'm just staring at the number and there's like $6 left in this account. It's like $6 and change. And I'm just staring at this number like, all right, like, this is it. It's over. <laughs> My life is completely over after this. I'm going to lose this $6. And like, you know, I had a good run. I made it 11 <laughs> years. <laughs> and then I'm going to go have to like tell my parents that I lost like over a thousand dollars, like more money than I've ever seen in my life. And I have no idea how I'm going to pay it back. Like I'm 11. I can't even go get a fucking job. Like what am I going to do to pay this money back? I'm like literally shitting my pants. Like I, I am having so much anxiety about this debt that I'm in that I'm having like an upset stomach all the time. And I'm like having difficulty sleeping over this. It was like just a terrible terrible situation. The fact that you're a poker player now is like astounding <laughs> having gone through this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, I'm staring at the $6 and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to play the smallest sit and go that they have. And which I think was like a $1 sit and go on full tilt at the time. So I play this $1 sit and go and I win it. And then I'm like, okay, I've got like $12 now on the account. So I'll just like play like a $3 sit and go. And I win that. And I just went on like the sickest heater ever. And I just, I was playing sit and goes, I was playing cash games, I was playing MTTs and I just started winning everything. It was just like, I was drinking from a fire hose all of a sudden. <laughs> I just like any, like I just couldn't not make money. So I made like a thousand back and then I made the 2000 back and I was back to even with Nick and everything. And then I made another thousand and another thousand. And like a couple months later, maybe even like six weeks later, after Nick gave me that talking to, I remember bringing him down to the computer and opening up the cashier and it had like over $6,000 in it. And he was just looking at it like, dude, <laughs> you're ridiculous. Like, this, is, this is so ridiculous. So I never busted. I, I managed to turn it around somehow. And he transferred that money out of his account. He gave me my own account to play on. And I basically grinded like mid-stakes cash and tournaments for like four years heavily with Nick. Um, we just played like all the time. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I got into playing online poker. Yeah, so everything hinged on that $6, <laughs> the last yeah. $6. I, I do sometimes wonder like how different my life would have been, at least for that like next five years, if, if I had lost that money. I, I just have no idea what would have happened. It's just crazy. And it seems like you loved playing poker more than Nick did because like if he's not checking his account balance or whatever, 
Yeah, well, he was on Stars and Party too at the time. Ah, okay. so I I think he was also playing a little bit on Full Tilt, but he sort of just like gave me that account temporarily to play on. Yeah, and he was playing on uh, elsewhere. But we were just both completely obsessed with poker at the time. Like there was there was just nothing that could get in the way of us in poker. Why do you? Th- what did your parents think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I was, I was actually just about to say, like, I feel like I should say where my parents were because that's probably where people, what people are wondering. Um, our parents didn't like it. They definitely tried to talk us out of playing, um, like any parent would. They were just like, you know, this never ends well. Like, people who gamble just always lose. Like, you guys shouldn't be doing this. Um, but my parents were always really good about treating us like adults, even though we were kids. So like if we were clearly in danger or something, they would step in and they would tell us what we needed to do. But the the thing is like we were winning. So, you know, it was, I guess, a little bit easier for them to be like, okay, this, there's no like clear and present danger here. And if we tell them, to stop playing poker, they're they're just not going to. Like, they're going to figure out a way to play no matter what we do. So, like, my parents were always very good about letting us make our own decisions, make mistakes, like, learn from our mistakes like adults. And I've always, like, really respected the way they, they parented like that. Because I think if they told us not to play, we we just would have played anyway. Like, there was no stopping it. We were completely obsessed. Yeah, then you would have just had to like have anxiety about hiding it and figuring yeah. out like how to just how to you would be lying to them. I mean, it, everything would have just gone downhill. And like you said, like when you're obsessed with something like that, they're not going to stop you, right? Like they could bar you from doing it. You'll figure it out on your own. So it's better to like oversee what's going on and keep yourself in the loop at, from a parental perspective than to just like force it underground. So then what happened? Like, so you, you said from 11 to 15. So mm-hmm. I assume something had to happen at like age 15 that dampened the obsession. Yeah, it's weird. I don't really remember there being like a specific day where I stopped playing. But Nick moved out eventually. Well, like when I was 15, Nick was 21. I think he moved out when he was like 20. Um, he He tried to go to college and then he quit after a semester, came back and then left around age 20. So like, I think it was a combination of just like burnout and losing my poker buddy. And I just like lost interest in it and I stopped playing completely. And I, I got really into other things. Like I was really into video game design in high school. Uh, I went to college, I got a degree in physics then I started a master's PhD in biophysics. I had a fellowship and like, so I was kind of on track to like having a normal life. And then like six months into grad school, not even six months, like three months in, I just like woke up one day and I realized this is not for me. I, I like, I just can't do this. There's no way that I can have a future here. What led um, to that? There had to be something building to come to that conclusion. I don't think that I really went to grad school for the right reasons. Um, I did very well in college, 
and I had great grades. So I was able to get into some really good schools. And like when you're in uh, like hard sciences, like physics and chemistry, they actually pay you to go to grad school. You get a fellowship um, and they give you a stipend. So, I mean, it was just like a, a great deal. And all my teachers in college said like, you should take this deal and, and go do this. But I wasn't really thinking about like what I really wanted to do, what I was interested in. And I've just never been the kind of person where I can show up at a job like that I'm not really into. I have to be 100% into it. Otherwise, I just like self-destruct. Also, like um, what, what's the point? You know, we're here temporarily, so we probably need yeah. to be doing the things we're passionate about. Totally. And it doesn't matter like, so like one of the things I was thinking about when I got into this field was biophysics is essentially using techniques in physics to do medical research. So I thought like, well, this is a really noble profession. Like I can save lives and stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I got into it. But it really doesn't matter what your profession is. Like if you're not really interested in it and engaged in it, you're not going to accomplish anything really significant anyway. So you're better off just doing whatever you're really interested in um, and like actually achieving something. Because, you know, even like like poker, I mean, we've talked about this in the past. It's a zero-sum game. It's actually a negative-sum game. Like we're not helping society, but you never know what things are going to lead to. So I don't really like think about that. Um, I just like know that this is what I like to do. And, you know, maybe it'll lead to something more important someday. Or, you know, maybe it just will make me a lot of money and I can put that money to good use someday by donating it or something. But anyway, I, I quit grad school and then I just like did some soul searching for a couple of years and worked in restaurants, just kind of like, you know, chilled out. And then um, I just got back into poker because Nick had started his coaching for profits program and I met all of his students and they were making a bunch of money on poker master at the time. And I just, I just knew that I wasn't done with poker and I had to get back into it. So that's what I did. So let's pull back for just a, a moment because I assume that like when you quit school, like did, how did your parents react to that? like giving up the stipend, the, the fellowship, and then just like not really having a, a <laughs> just mm -hmm. kind of being flying in the wind, basically trying to find yourself. They tried to persuade me to keep going like any parent would, I think. And, but really like, I tend to be someone who like thinks about stuff a lot and and I like I, I remember I was like journaling a ton during this period and like really thinking about this decision. It, it was just so clear to me that I was in the wrong place. And I think they understood that. So they supported it. Like they've always supported me, even if they didn't totally agree with the decisions I was making. And it wasn't actually even that hard of a decision to make. And I've never regretted it for a second since I've made it. And in fact, actually, one of the most peculiar things about quitting grad school was how many other graduate students came up to me one like just before I was leaving and said like I really respect what you're doing like I have been thinking a lot about quitting graduate school and like my parents won't let me or you know I, I just 
am too scared to do it. It was kind of bizarre how many people came up to me and said that. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like a no-brainer, right? Like, you're just going to do what is good for Pat, right? Like, and that's just, at the end of the day, that's what you're going to do. But I think a lot of people do feel those external pressures and will just pursue something just because of all the outside forces and they can't handle the pressure of like disappointing somebody else or letting them down or having those hard conversations. So I'm sure that like for a lot of those people that were on the fence or not even on the fence, they were off the fence. (laughs) They knew this is not the place for me. You know, I can imagine that that's pretty inspirational for them to see like, wow, you know, he's doing it. He feels the same way I do. And he's actually taking action and quitting. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's just humanity, right? It's like social proof of somebody doing something that you desperately want to do. And you probably gave other people courage to drop out of school. So <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> don't know if that's something <laughs> to be proud of. I think in this case, it, it certainly would be. But um, really, you gave people you gave people the ability to pursue their own passions and live a life that's more true to themselves, which ultimately, what could be better than that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. If I did influence anybody, I, I think I am proud of that. So poker was a big part of Nick's life forever, right? Like it never kind of went away for him. Yeah, he so, always kept playing. Right. So when you when you dropped out, why restaurants? Why not poker? Did you think about poker? Was it on your radar at all? No. In fact, so I had played for like a month in college. I randomly started playing on full tilt again. This was like just before Black Friday. But other than that, I like didn't even play a hand for pretty much 10 years. So when I quit grad school, I wasn't even thinking about poker. I was really interested in food and travel and I still am. And I still think I would like to maybe be like a part owner of a restaurant someday or like a pizzeria or something. And my brain was just fried after being in physics and just like studying all the time. So I just wanted to like work with my hands and I just said, okay, well, I I tried to do like the right thing and that didn't work. So I'm just going to do like whatever I want to do next. And I just wanted to work in a pizzeria. So that was the next thing that I did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Nick, there was no, Nick didn't try to influence you. Like, no, So there was poker talk, right? Like you had to be around he had to talk about it sometimes with you. Yeah. Um, although like surprisingly little, I, I don't remember like even talking that much about poker with him. But you know, things just like lead to other things randomly in life. And basically what happened was I like worked my way up in this pizzeria and I, I got really close with my boss and he had a cousin in Italy who owned a restaurant. And I told my boss, I want to go work in Italy in a restaurant. So he set me up with a summer job in Italy, which turned out to be a nightmare because the chef in this restaurant was like like a Gordon Ramsay type guy who would just scream at everybody constantly. So I went to Italy, worked there for a month. I was like, this sucks. I quit that job. And then Nick randomly was having a retreat for his CFP players, his coaching for profits players in Spain. And I was just backpacking around Europe, um, like with the little money that I had for a few weeks. And this trip just coincided. So he was like, hey, why don't you come cook for the the house (laughs) and I'll pay for your rent and you don't have to pay for anything. So I went and I cooked for these guys for a week. 
And I just ended up like pretty much falling back into the poker world that way. And then no looking back after that, right? Like, so did you start, uh, did you just quit your job at the pizzeria pretty Mm -hmm. like, did that, when you quit in, um, Italy, did that end that relationship with your boss in the U S too, or could you have gone back? Um, sort of like I, I have kind of fallen out of touch with him. Um, but it, it was like an amicable, uh, like thing with the restaurant in Italy. Like he wasn't upset with me or anything. He actually kind of felt bad cause he didn't know what situation he'd <laughs> led me into. Right. Um, but no, I'm, I'm like, I'm still on in good terms, on good terms with him, but just not really in touch, um, as much. What, what was the question? Uh, it was, um, basically like, did you just quit your job with your boss in the USA when you were cooking for Nick's CFP and then just dive directly into poker? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I just like, after that trip, I just, I had this feeling in my gut, like, okay, this is the next thing that I'm going to do. Any Um, reason why, like why you felt that way? I mean, you said the money and how successful. So some like social proof there with Nick's coaching for profit people. Yeah, I think that was part of it. I don't really know though. Like there was a specific moment after the Spain trip where I went to Japan with some other friends and I was sitting on the bullet train, which is if you've ever been to Japan and rode the bullet train, it's like you can hear a needle drop because Japanese people are so quiet and polite and it's like perfectly silent. The train runs perfectly silently and it was weird. I, I just had like this very euphoric feeling come over me and I just knew, okay, this is the next phase. I know what I want to do now, which was an amazing feeling because I had just felt like I had no idea what I wanted to do for so long. So I think it was just like, I was just ready to get back into it. I needed to take that break. Uh, and then after the break, I was just ready. Yeah. Nick would, inquire more about intuition and all these feelings of like, yeah. why, why did you feel that way, Pat? <laughs> There's I mean, gotta be a reason, right? Like there are some things where like data and science just don't really work or help that much. I'm like very big on just going with my gut same. on a lot of things. Yeah. If I can't like get data on it, then I'm just going to like check, like, especially for like major life decisions, I'm just going to mm-hmm. check how I feel in my gut and a lot of times it's just really obvious for me. Yeah. I mean, it's like the subconscious mind is still operating and seeing things and will give you feedback and direct you one way or the other. And like, it's kind of pointless to try to explain why and see all the data. But like, I, I just believe it's based on something like that is just happening subconsciously and it just manifests in a feeling. And like, you either trust yourself and trust that feeling and move forward or you don't. And most of the time when I trust that feeling, like if things go to hell in a handbasket, it's when I do something against that feeling (laughs) typically. So like the regrets that I have in life are like going against that feeling. So I just tend to always trust it. Um, if I'm on the fence. Yeah, totally. So, uh, you get the feeling you're back into poker. What did the journey back into poker look like after so many years off? It was rough, actually. Like the first year was pretty bad. Like we've been pretty lucky with the 
Poker Detox Coaching for Profits program, it's pretty much grown like significantly every year since we started it. But 2018 was a bad year. That was, I think, the one year where we um, actually like lost ground because I'm sure a lot of people know this, but Poker Master was like completely corrupted and we were just getting cheated. Um, yeah. It was like, it went from like a gold mine to like just collusion yeah. and cheating everywhere to where like you couldn't win seemingly mm-hmm. like overnight. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, I'm, I don't know what other people's experiences were. I imagine it's scary when you're one person playing, when you are staking 10 people who are on that site and it's just like every day you check what the results are and they just lost more money. I mean, it was like a terrifying experience. So yeah, I basically like got back into poker and like went straight into a year of hell. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> poker master thing. <laughs> the worst time if it would have been one year before, yeah. it would have been great. But we survived that period. And you know, at that time there were a lot of new tools coming out like like hand to note. Can I um, one one sec, let me so you say we and so like what was your role within the coaching for profit, right? If like if you were, because you obviously your brother is Nick. I mean, mm-hmm. was it pure player? Were you doing administration? Um, I pretty much immediately started working on the course content for him because, like, he had course materials for his students, but it was just a lot of one-on-one, like, just verbal teaching, and like things were not that organized. And the way that I learn typically is by creating the material that I would like to to go through if, if I was a student. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know why I've just always learned best that way by like putting things into my own words and creating my own course for myself. Yeah, it's, so, it's interesting you say that because I didn't know that about myself until I started making a bunch of courses. And then I realized mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm like, I know this stuff inside and out by the time a course goes public because like I've taught myself. And so like, it's really just a great methodology for learning anything is just making something yourself. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so yeah, I, I was playing poker, not full-time, but I like probably half the volume a full-time player would play and learning at the same time. And also just kind of like trying to absorb everything my brother was teaching all of us and package it into a course. Um, so he was kind of like supplementing my income for that work. So I didn't have to immediately rely on winning from poker, which was a good deal for me. Mm-hmm. So, so you did have awareness of like, oh, we're getting crushed on poker master, <laughs> like from the back end every yeah. single day. <laughs> um, all of our guys are getting destroyed every single day. Um, yeah. so the course itself, tell me about like, how did you go about creating this course? Like in a way that made sense to you? I mean, poker is just a really complicated game. So it's just kind of about taking as many core truths as you can and packaging them into something and trying to cut out all of the extraneous just complexity. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I just, I've always tried to make like as simple of curriculum as possible. And pretty much like just try to, like I said, just absorb everything that Nick knew and put it on paper, put it in a, a, a format that a player could 
read and digest in you know a couple of weeks and eventually we we reached the ceiling with that and um like i was saying before at this time there were a lot of new tools available that weren't around when i played poker 10 years prior um hand to note is the main one allows you to do uh database analysis on huge databases of hand histories and like solvers too obviously so pretty quickly like maybe a year after i started i started to learn hand to note and i think just because of my scientific background and just the way that i think i was able to like use those tools a lot more effectively than most poker players from the start so that was when i started just doing a bunch of my own data research and I pretty quickly figured out that like Nick was right about a lot of stuff, but there was also a lot of stuff that we were just totally wrong about and started changing the strategy and just upgrading the strategy um, like from there. And um, yeah, I just, I got really into that type of work. Um, I ended up doing a bunch of bluff catching research and then I created a public course from that, which was called Ether. Um, I took like some of the sales from that and started my own bankroll and I decided to leave CFP because I had enough money to play on my own stake. And then that was early 2019. So for all of 2019, I played full time on my own stake and I, I moved from one, two on Bovada to five, 10 and 20, 10, 20, um, relatively quickly. I think it was like six or seven months. And then after that, after that like a year of playing, I stopped again and I took like another three month break from poker. And I just took all of this research that I had done over the past couple of years and I decided to create a new course out of it, which ended up being like a huge research journal, basically. Um, sort of halfway between a, a research journal and a course. And um, we ended up using that journal as the course that we put our Coaching for Profit students through now. Um, so I kind of came back to CFP as a coach only. Um, and since then, you know, our results have kind of exploded in the past year, year and a half. And we've gotten much bigger now than we were back a few years ago. Fish dog bets the flop, and you don't know what to do. One man, Coach Brad Wilson, has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com/slash nuffle. Rated R. So couple things to unravel there. I think the first thing, the first question that I want to ask you is, you know, you mentioned stripping out the extraneous stuff and reducing the complexity so that everything's more simple. Why value simple over complexity? Because this is, you know, something that I see in the poker world where like, I'm always trying to press my guys to simplify so that they can execute. And they're always like rebelling and trying to increase the complexity 
um, and then they just failed to execute. So like, why did you value simplicity or was this an intuitive thing um, or was it a conclusion that you had come to? I guess it was fairly intuitive for me. I've always valued simplicity a lot. And I think the reason I value simplicity over complexity is because when your decision-making process is too complicated, a lot of times what happens, especially under pressure, like when there's a lot of money on the line, is your whole framework just falls apart. And what you end up doing is actually just surrendering to whatever your cognitive biases wanted you to do in the first place. And you're not actually using what you know at all. So I would actually rather take a slightly less accurate strategy that I can execute simply and consistently than a more complicated strategy, which might be more accurate in theory, but then it completely falls apart a certain percentage of the time and I make a huge mistake. So like a lot of my coaching is more like trying to eliminate mistakes, big mistakes from players' games and accepting, you know, more than average, like smaller mistakes that don't really even matter too much in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's like um, the difference between like a Tesla has something like 20 parts and a typical car has like 200. And like when you have 200 different parts, you have so many different um, failure points for your vehicle. So like something breaks, like you just it's off the road more than it's on the road. And the Tesla, like one thing breaks, like, you know, you can, there's just fewer parts to manage. And so the more parts that you have to a strategy, you have more failure points and the more likely it is to break at one of those parts. And then also, you know, you mentioned the cognitive biases and like in coaching, the way that I do structure most of my private coaching is like listening to play and explain videos and then giving feedback in high frequency spots that I think move the needle, just listening to my students thought process. Right. And one thing that I see pop up, it's like very, it's almost comical how like something will happen. that's unexpected in a hand. And so like my student will have a plan, something unexpected happens. And then all of a sudden they just fall apart. Because like they don't have a plan and all of it. And now it's like, well, I would call here if I had a club, right? And it's like, you feel- uh, yeah, That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, right. Like they, they feel this high emotion. And then like, now they're just searching for a narrative that makes sense to justify, you know, this emotional decision that's clearly biased, right? And, and like, it, you just see it at, at like even high level players. It's like, well- I didn't expect this. Well, maybe I would call if I have a spade. It's like, no, like you really think yeah. this whole hand hinges on like whether or not you have a fucking spade or not. Like, <laughs> like, let's be real here, you know, but it just happens. You know, it, we're human beings and like we have to accept that we're human beings. We're emotional creatures and we're just biased. Yeah. The other thing with poker is a lot of times like in practice, the solution to a hand does end up becoming pretty simple because everything usually hinges on a concept that I call the equity threshold. So basically you have two concepts in poker that are really important, mandatory defense frequency and optimal bluffing frequency. And those are just based on like the size of the bet that you choose and the pot odds that you're giving to your opponent. And like, so a lot of people are used to these days studying GTO solutions where the computer is balancing everything perfectly it's exactly sitting on these equity thresholds. And the only thing that it can really do to like gain an edge is like go deep into these like crazy little blocker effects. And, you know, like most of that stuff in an actual real poker scenario is just not 
doesn't even matter. Um, usually, and this is where the data comes in, your opponent's going to be overfolding on the river, or he's going to be uh, overbluffing or underbluffing. And like what actually happens when that is the case is like if someone's overbluffing, you end up just calling all your bluff catchers usually. Um, if somebody's overfolding, you typically do always fire a bluff if you like have no showdown value. So that's, I think, why things end up becoming pretty simple in practice a lot of the time is because of that equity threshold concept. Right, and which just like reverts back to, okay, so now which spots are villains overfolding, overbluffing, underbluffing, um, and then how do we take advantage of that, right? Like in, in built into, you know, my, my courses specifically, which to be fair, like I value simplicity and I know that like my courses are more complex th than yours in some aspects, but like it, it comes down to like, okay, so we have like a value bet threshold, right? Like we have bluffing thresholds and like when you hit it, you bluff. <laughs> and when you don't, you, you either bluff catch or, you know, check back to realize equity. Like if you know your value, you don't meet your value bet threshold. Well, then, you know, you shouldn't bet because anytime you get called, you're losing money. Therefore you should just check back. Right. And it's just, it, it's understanding, I guess, at least my experience with this, I, I understand so much more the mechanisms that drive actions and like what all is happening. And then, you know, you, then it's just a matter of like picking out, oh, this person's just overfolding here. Therefore, you know, we're just going to over bluff and that's going to make money just kind of across the board. Yeah. And I should clarify. So my definition of an equity threshold is the point at which it becomes profitable to put more money into the pot. So if you exceed an equity threshold, you're going to either be betting or raising. And if you're not exceeding it or calling, um, and if you're not, then you're going to be you know, checking or folding basically. Yeah. So I did have a question submitted from the audience. Uh, a guy by the name of Nick Howard had me, wanted me to ask you about your thoughts on extraterrestrials. Um, so <laughs> we'll, okay. uh, we'll go, not surprising. go down that. Yeah. He's like, he's like, Hey man, you, you got to throw Pat the, uh, question about extraterrestrials, which I assume doesn't have anything to do with poker, but excited to hear mm -hmm. your thoughts. Well, like most people who have a training in physics, like who have a background in physics, I definitely think aliens probably exist. Like the universe is just too big and there's too many planets out there that could hypothetically support life that it just seems insane to think that there are not. Fermi paradox, right? Well, the Fermi paradox is kind of what throws that for a loop, which is like, where are all the aliens if there are... Right. supposedly so many out there in the known universe and i don't fucking know like <laughs> i'm not gonna bullshit you <laughs> um i don't really believe that aliens have visited us i mean maybe they have but just in a way that we couldn't even perceive i tend to just disregard like all of the news that's coming out about aliens being spotted and ufos like the government talking about ufos i mean I guess it could be true. It just, it seems bizarre that it's always like on some fuzzy potato camera that looks like it was released like from the fifties. You know, like you can listen to Elon Musk talk about this on his last Joe Rogan interview. He's basically just like, look, if there were aliens here, I would know. 
<laughs> like they would tell me. <laughs> and so far, like I've seen no evidence. Like, like show me basically my my take is just like show me the HD photo of an alien, like on an actual cell phone camera from 2021. And and then yeah, totally I'll believe it. But like, I don't know. The the evidence seems lacking so far. And Elon Musk, that's a pretty big ego. Like, I, w- I would know if the aliens are... What if they're just, like, watching to see if, like, how destructive we are, if we, like, make it out of this next phase without blowing ourselves to bits? Yeah, I mean, it could be that. They could just, like, see us and be like, well, this planet is fucking crazy and they're <laughs> constantly at war with each other and, like, we don't want to mess with that. Yeah, or they're going to flame out on their own. We don't need to, We don't need to talk to them. Or it's possible that just like every advanced civilization flames out before they get to advanced space travel. And the distance, both in space and in time, are just too vast between, you know, life-bearing planets that they just never come into contact with each other. Yeah, that's the great, the great filter theory, right? Where like, yeah. basically everybody's fucked. Uh, at some point, every civilization just falls apart eventually. Yeah, but Nick and I often get into arguments because he likes to like have a lot of crazy theories and I'm more just practical, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. Can't just like, you know, sate his curiosity just for like just to do it. What's a crazy theory? Since he since he had me ask you this question on the podcast, like what's a what's a crazy theory that Nick has? I mean, I don't know. This, this is like sort of a politicized topic, but we were talking the other day about the COVID vaccines. Um, as you know, I'm pretty like pro vaccine at this point. I think the data is pretty clear that like for most people, it's the right decision to make based on what we know. I'm a very practical person, but I also think I'm a very open-minded person. Like I'm ready to change my beliefs if I'm presented with new evidence. And also... Like, I accept that I can be wrong about things, even if I hold pretty strong beliefs about them. So, like, most people who are, uh, well, I don't want to, like, generalize, but I've, I get the feeling, like, a lot of people who are pro-vaccine will encounter, like, a vaccine conspiracy theorist, and they will just dismiss them. But, like, I actually always try to talk to those people and hear them out, because, like, if they know something I don't know, I want to know that, you know, I'm just, I'm more interested in seeking out truth. But so I was having this conversation with Nick about the vaccines and he felt like there's something potentially nefarious going on with the vaccines and he's skeptical of them. Usually the direction our arguments go in from that point, is just like, I'm not really interested in debating unfalsifiable arguments. If you can't, measure it or test it then it's sort of just a crazy theory and like you can talk about it for entertainment but it's not like an intellectually serious place to start a debate from i'm much more about like looking at the data that we have now and basing my decision on that and also disregarding unknown unknowns like you know what could happen in the future with the vaccines or what could happen in the future with the virus um i don't think that really belongs in an accurate decision-making framework. Yeah, I mean, it, they're unknowables. So like, how do you quantify it if you can't measure it? 
You mm-hmm. just don't know. Um, it's interesting. I need now. I need to have Nick back on to talk about his vaccine nefarious thoughts because probably <laughs> you could skip that one. <laughs> I have a, I have like it probably gets censored. Oh man, I I, I have um no people that I respect and love that are also that are like on the fence about the vaccine and like I always want to hear them out and I I want to know like the thought process and like why they believe because like. I respect your brother more than I respect almost any other human being. And so like, if this is something that he's thinking about, then yeah, I I do would value his opinion on the matter. Like, I think it's Mm -hmm. worthwhile to listen to it. And and I think like, that's a very wise way to go about just encountering people that believe pretty much anything differently than you is just hearing them out, right? Hearing the reasons for why they believe what they do. Um, Because like, you're, you're never... You're never persuasive when you belittle and dismiss people outright, ever. Like, if you want to change somebody's opinion, the worst thing you can do is just call them stupid, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, that, because they just bear down. And then on the flip side of that, having an open mind, like, if you learn something that changes your opinion, then, like, you've grown. You've upgraded your thought process. Like, now you're smarter, more well-informed, which can happen, right? Like, that's that's a possibility. So, like, going into these conversations with open-mindedness and it's just like, to me, has always made more sense than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, man. I mean, a lot of people are very skeptical of the vaccines. Like, I, like, you know, six months ago or a year ago, like, before the vaccines came out, I, I felt that there would be a lot of people who didn't want it, but I didn't really quite think it was going to be the one in three, or, or maybe it's like one in four or five that it is. And it's just a tough situation because like, you know, it's, there's so many people, even people with advanced medical degrees and, and like, you know, credentialed people who are speaking out against the vaccines and, you know, kind of whistleblowing, I guess. And it just ends up becoming like a sort of he said, she said game. People don't really know what to believe. And unless you have a background in science and you're able to read papers and think critically about what people are saying, it's very hard to, you know, separate the the signal from the noise and the truth from the misinformation. So I think people just don't really know what to do. And, and like for some people, inaction feels just naturally safer than inaction. Like not getting the vaccine feels safer than actually getting the vaccine. I think it's just a cognitive bias that we have. But for me personally, like, you know, I, I've researched this a ton. I don't know why I'm so interested in it, but I just am. And I I just read constantly about it. And I try to get as many opinions from different angles as I possibly can. And I was initially skeptical about the vaccines too. Like, you know, I definitely wasn't pro vaccine from the start and wanting to be like a guinea pig. But over time, I just felt that the people who were intelligent and making an argument for vaccines were just making a lot more logical sense. And the people who were intelligent and against vaccines were actually not, like they were smart, but they weren't actually logical and clear thinkers. And, you know, so far, I personally believe that like everything that I've read that is anti-vaccine has been mostly just speculation. Like they just don't have a a shred of like real evidence that these are 
significantly dangerous. The vaccines are not 100% safe. I don't think anybody's saying that. There are definitely some very rare risks, but that's not the point. The point is like, what's safer? Right. Is it getting the vaccine or not getting the vaccine? And I think, you know, with the exception of people who have had the virus and, um, and you know, children, I think it's pretty clear for all the other groups that like getting the vaccine is going to be safer. And, you know, this is just human nature. Like, <laughs> I just say this, betting against medicine, like poker players always think in bets, right? That's a really bad bet to make. Like if you just look at the last hundred years of history and the change in life expectancy that humanity has seen, at least in the developed world, especially, and most of that is due, or a lot of that is due to advances in medical technology. Like you don't want to swim against that current. Like it's just, it's like pretty certain that even for relatively new medical technologies, taking the medicine is going to be better than not taking the medicine but people have always resisted new medical technologies. Like every time, anything, something that we're used to now, like antibiotics or something, anytime that's come out, there have been people who have been skeptical of it and who haven't wanted to take it. And then, you know, over time, it becomes clear that, okay, this is safe and this is a clear net positive. And then it becomes common. And then it's just, you know, on to the next new technology. Yeah, I mean, and it's not even just the uninformed. Sometimes, you know, like I know with like germ theory, right? Like doctors, when they were delivering children, used to never wash their hands, right? Like they just, they didn't want, and like the mortality rate of the mothers was like through the roof. And like the data came out that like, oh, you should do this. And like the doctors who had been delivering kids for decades would not change their stance. Like basically mm -hmm. for everything to change, they all had to die. And the next generation had to take its take their place for there to be change across the board. So like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's human, right? It's human to have a belief and then just stick with it, regardless of like whatever data, whatever information um, that you get presented with. And I mean, the problem I think that especially with this vaccine has been the the politis, 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 politization of it. God, that's a tough word. Yeah, it's tough. Um, <laughs> It's been so politicized that yeah. like people root their identity in one way or the other in the same way that like people root their identity into like one side of the political spectrum or the other, or they root their identity in their religion to the point to where like whenever you say something contrary to what I believe or a thing that my people believe, then it's personal to me because that's who I am. And that just creates natural resistance to new information and kind of evolving based on new known things. And I think for the listener to just bear one thing in mind is like, try not to make your identity be these things. Um, at least question, right? Like question whether or not things are true, because a lot of times if you're wrong, you grow and you're better because of it. And if you don't learn anything, then you've just solidified your belief and that's a good outcome too. Yeah. And I should say like, I'm definitely not a doctor. Like I'm not giving anybody medical advice. I'm not even really trying to convince anybody to go get the vaccine. Like, I don't, I have mine. I don't really care if you get yours. But, you know, I just, I think it's good to try to just help people make a decision based on facts and true information instead of misleading information and, and like potentially conspiracy theories causing you to make a pretty dumb decision with your health. 
we're entering a, a, a great unknown, Pat, a world where mis and disinformation is so prevalent that like getting to the root of the truth of things is difficult for anybody, right? You'd have to spend all your time researching everything to get to like what's actually happening mm -hmm. because of just all the distortion. And that to me, like when, you know, the, the release of deep fakes and like you can just mimic people's audio and video and like it's just it's a scary place to be as a society having to deal with like not being able to trust really any information that comes your way at face value yeah i think the data have shown that like not too many people actually get fooled by like the fake news but with the vaccine i think when there are so many different opinions being thrown around it can be easy just to say i don't know, just throw up your hands and kind of like shut down. And when you shut down, you don't take action. And unfortunately, like the vaccine requires your action to take it. So yeah, that was a, a Sam Harris podcast. He was talking about uh, deep fakes, somebody that like specialized in analyzing, researching deep fakes. And basically mm -hmm. to make the long story short, the end result was, you know, she said that like basically in an information warfare, like if it's the Russians trying to influence whatever, basically like their end goal is not to convince you your their end goal is to make you not care and not trust anything like that's that's the actual end goal and, and i think that like that really hit home with me because that was like my stance on a lot of things was like well i don't know the truth of it so like what's the point of even what's the point of even like believing one thing or the other yeah yeah it's tough i mean this is why i i, I do this mostly on like my private social media like instagram but i've like just made videos explaining stuff like the Vayers data and, and just to try to help my friends cut through some of the noise. But, you know, unfortunately, there's just not that much you can do. It just, this is how it is. Um, <laughs> I, I will say I'm, I'm pretty apprehensive about the future right now. Like, I think a lot of people think COVID's over and I don't think that, I mean, I hope that it's over, but I have a really bad feeling about the fall and winter. Like it's summer right now. We know that this virus is seasonal. It's being quiet right now. And I just feel like we're making the same mistakes where we kind of let our guard down. Um, not that we shouldn't be getting back to normal, but um, I mean, there's just two things mainly that I'm concerned about. One is there are a lot of people who still haven't been vaccinated. And the second thing is this Delta variant is like, definitely infecting people who have been vaccinated. It's getting past the vaccine. So I think a pretty likely scenario, unfortunately, is when this kind of explodes again in the fall and winter, we're going to see a lot of cases in people who haven't been vaccinated because Delta is more infectious than the original strain. And we're going to see deaths in that group. And then fortunately, I think any, everything I've read so far has shown that like, if you have a vaccine and you do get infected with the Delta variant, your symptoms are not as severe. So I think we might not see nearly as many deaths in the vaccinated population, but we're still going to see an explosion of cases in the vaccinated population. And I guess I just, I, I'm concerned. I don't see how people are not going to lose their shit again when that starts to happen so maybe yeah a bit I, of a dark note to end the podcast yeah on. like i, I mean <laughs> i unfortunately i i do agree with you 
and like the I guess the biggest eye opener going through the pandemic is just like how ill prepared we were as sort of like a society to deal with a pandemic and like yeah. what if the death rate was much worse right then then what would have happened and inevitably there there will be another pandemic i promise that that's not covid down the road because there always is and like will one be critically devastating to population and humans as a whole i don't know but right now i'm not i'm not uber confident that we'll be able to de- clear that hurdle whenever it presents itself in the future which yeah, that that's I think a little pessimistic or dark too, but that's just my gut reaction having lived through all this the last year. Do mm-hmm. you have any more thoughts on that before we go back to poker for a minute? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there, it's that likely that like a Ebola type virus will get loose and like kill everyone, but I think people maybe don't fully appreciate like how fragile society is. Like the real risk is. Yeah, maybe it's like two or three times as deadly as COVID. And then people really start to freak out. And then society collapses because everybody just panics. Like that's the real risk. And I think a lot of the decisions that our government have made, our our government has made, you know, over the past year will start to make more sense to you if you look at it through that lens of its panic mitigation, because that's their biggest fear is that they enter a scenario where they lose control of people. So like a lot of COVID policy didn't really make sense to me until I started thinking about it in that way. And, you know, some of it just still doesn't make sense. Like when they closed like the beaches and the hiking trails, that was when I was like, okay, they're just making it up. Like <laughs> we're, we're, we're kind of fucked here because they clearly like, they don't know what they're doing. They're panicking. Um right. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, hopefully, like, there we'll get like a booster shot or something, and the, the variants won't be as big of an issue as I think. But I do think there's like a good chance that we're going to be masking again in some places in the country and locking down potentially in the winter. I hope not, but we'll see. I mean, the the biggest the biggest thing going f- for the USA is that like there's a lot of incentive to stop it. <laughs> there's a lot of in- like monetary incentive to not let it spiral out of control. And so like, because of that, you know, there's a lot of resources being put behind per- outbreak prevention and education and hopefully to keep society from unraveling. But uh, I guess we'll see. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Uh, yeah. Now let's go to like some lightning round questions that um, will be a little bit more uplifting here before okay. we, we sign I'll off. I'll try at least. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, we'll start with this one that I'm excited to hear your answer on. What's some common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with? Hmm. Common advice here. I hear people say nobody ever bluffs a lot, which I can't really understand. Because <laughs> uh, people definitely bluff a lot. So that would be a big one. There's a lot of poker advice that I don't really understand. Um, I'm not really in the poker world that much. Like I'm kind of just, I've always kind of been doing my own thing and studying the game in a different way, uh, than other people. So I don't, I don't hear like too much poker advice 
that I think, wow, that's like great advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's rare, at least. There, there's definitely people out there who are, you know, really good coaches, and I respect them a lot. But it's yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, this question because I'm the one that created this question. Like over time, I've just created a long list of things that are that I'm like, nope, not true, not true, not true, and you just hear it perpetuated over and over and over again, and. Yeah, the reality is like the data tells totally different stories than a lot of conventional poker advice and you know, whether you believe it or you you don't, that's just the reality of this game. If you could gift every poker player one book to read, what would it be and why? Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. This book completely changed my career. Um just has like shaped everything that I've done since I read it. I mean, the whole book is worth reading, but basically the thesis is that humans are irrational and we have all these cognitive biases. So the way we think is often irrational and wrong, and it's like reliably and systematically wrong. And there are just like like hundreds of examples of this in this book. Um, Loss aversion is a really common one where we actually feel more pain from losing something, like twice as much pain from losing something than than we feel pleasure from gaining that thing. Uh, but really, like once you start to see that your brain is and your intuition are really fallible, that's like the fundamental truth. I think that 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 changed the way I thought about poker because I. After I read this book, I really started devaluing my intuition and really putting full faith in data because I just think it's more accurate. Yep. And I mean, like I like I said at the beginning of this podcast, right? Like I've had to deconstruct, you know, in the same way that you said, you know, Nick had a lot of things right, but then a lot of things were not right. Like have yeah. to deconstruct sort of, you know, the anecdotal evidence that I was basing my intuition on in a lot of spots when you yeah. get, get confronted with like different truths in the reality of this situation. The way you respond when you're confronted with being totally wrong about something is really important. Like a stupid person, if they have a belief and you show them like a, a poker belief, let's say like a, a raise is underbluffed in this situation and you show them data on it and so you say, actually, you're exactly wrong. Like this is overbluffed. A stupid person will just ignore you. A smart person will like be like, okay, I was wrong about this specific example. A really smart person will be like, oh, I was wrong about this. I could be wrong about everything. And then start searching for other scenarios where his intuition is failing him. So I think, you know, you can tell a lot about a poker player and how much success they're going to have by how they respond to being shown information like that and being shown that they're wrong. Absolutely. Just measure the pushback. And that, that was like, it's exciting by the way, like for people, like what's interesting is like, you would think that it wouldn't be exciting to realize that like a bunch of things that you thought was totally wrong. But for me, it's like, holy shit, like this is awesome. Like I've had, I've made all these wrong assumptions and now I get to upgrade my game in all these different areas that like other people aren't doing. And that just creates massive edge. So like, I, I don't know. It's, I've, I've just always felt excitement when I've been proven wrong on specific things that I really felt strongly about. It's like, holy shit, like this is great. Like 
yesterday I was an idiot and today I'm smarter and that's good. Yeah. Um, hopefully today I'm an idiot and tomorrow I can figure out things that make me smarter. Um, and that's really just kind of how I think about life. Yeah. Again, it's just like, you're more interested in truth than comfort. You know, you're okay with dealing with some discomfort and some confusion in the short term if you're moving toward truth in the long term. Yeah. I think the, the biggest, the biggest downside is like never finding that ground where you feel safe, like never having an anchor in something that's like doing well in poker. You know, I think that that's probably Nick talked a lot about that when he like became very dogmatic about like the pile outputs and like reached his, you know, low point and then really just had to change the way that he thought about everything. Like when you're sort of out on the ocean in your boat, and you're going every which way and you've got nothing to grasp onto and like beginner beginner poker players this is something that happens where like one day they'll think something's great then they'll hear something else the next day and then they'll think that's great and then like the next day they think something else is great and so they just never make progress and they're just always kind of flailing around and i think that's the scariest place to be as a poker player yeah um to people who feel like that i would just recommend like finding a coach who has an established strategy that wins and, you know, find that anchor. And then, you know, you can start learning more and, and creating your own style of poker. Right. But if you're just going any which way the wind blows, you're, you're dead in the water. Yep. And just having that solid ground, even if, the, even if it's not like the best of the best thing, just something to sink your hooks into that stabilizes you. And then mm -hmm. from there, you know, you just learn and grow and become better with that foundation in place. Yeah. I always say like the, the most negative EV thing that can happen to you as a poker player is you get knocked out of the game completely. And if you go on a huge downswing and you don't have any faith in your system, well, what's going to happen is you're probably going to end up taking tons of time off. So, you know, even if you're on your best day winning a little bit less with a simpler strategy, there's a lot of value in being able to pump that volume day in and day out and not have long periods where you're just like trying to recover from the insanity of poker because this is an insane career. Like you're going to have horrible, horrible stretches of variance that you have to deal with and you have to keep showing up every day and it can always get worse no matter how bad things have gone for the last month or three months. So you need to have that consistency. And you have to be able to forgive yourself too. You know, this is, I've had the same, this conversation with like a couple of private coaching students. It's, it's funny to me that, you know, you worded it that way that like staying in the game is ultimately the most valuable thing. Like one of my private coaching students made like a 30 big blind mistake and then stopped playing poker for like a week. And I'm like, right. dude, like why, like you're winning in the games you play in. We can quantify this objectively. So like, doesn't it make more sense to just like accept that you're fallible and you're going to fuck up and you're, you may make a 30 big blind decision, but like being out of the game, like that costs you 300 bucks. How much did it cost you to be out of the game for a week? Like 3000, 4,000. Yeah. Um, it, it's not even close. And then another, another situation was somebody that was, uh, shot taking that, um, basically singled out the strongest player at their table at, in a live game full of fish and then played a big pot like with uh, a hand that's probably plus EV, but very small plus EV, where if they get busted and lose a big pot, 
they're out of that game. And now they can't realize their edge against any of the fish over the course of that session. Like staying in the game is ultimately more valuable than grabbing a small edge against, you know, the strongest player at the table. If you have infinite money, go for it, do whatever you want. But if you don't, you, you have to consider that because it is a variable that matters. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely times when you want to take a day off or maybe a few days off if you really feel like you need that, that space and the time away from the tables. But it's sort of like the gym, right? Like if you're taking a month off or two months off, something went wrong. Like that, that's almost never correct unless you got like seriously injured in some way. And then that probably means you did something wrong. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, and, and you should rest, you should actively rest. I, I believe you should disconnect from everything really like all the electronics, just totally disconnect on your active rest days as a poker player. They're important for rejuvenation, avoiding burnout and all those sorts of things. But like, if this is your job, you got to show up and like you, you make a mistake. Guess what? We're all fallible. We all make mistakes. You just play the next hand, forgive yourself, move on and try to do better tomorrow. Mm hmm. Do you have any projects you're working on that are near and dear to your heart? Yeah, I'm working on a pretty huge project right now, actually. Um, I'm starting my own public course with Matthew Marinelli, who's part of the Poker Detox crew. Um, it's called Poker Detox Elite. And whereas CFP is more like for low stakes to mid stakes players who are just trying to get their footing and start a career. This course is more for people who are already making a significant amount of money playing poker and like really want to take their game to the next level. Um, so like the goal of this course is to just prepare you for pretty much any game on the internet. Um, and it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention. It's all of like the exploitative stuff that we teach our players in CFP but it's also all of my new research in 2021. And I haven't like spoken about this too much, but basically I've moved away from exploitative research. Like I feel like I've pretty much picked all of the fruit on that tree at this point. And if there are things that I've missed, like it's probably not huge stuff at least. And most of my time, pretty much all my time at this point is spent doing GTO research. So ultimately you know, I, I want like sort of a hybrid GTO exploitative system. And I want players to be able to either revert to a totally balanced strategy if they feel like they're playing opponents that they don't know where the exploits are yet, or, you know, pull out some big exploits if they do feel like they can do that, like especially at the fish, because there are still fish at very high stakes games. Um, or like, making small adjustments like minute exploits that are for all intents and purposes like imperceptible to your opponent um but you're not quite playing gto at the same time um so that's that's what i'm working on now and we haven't launched the course yet we've we've launched a wait list so you can apply on our site for it if you're interested and what's, i think what's a url uh if you just go on pokerdetox.com and click on the elite tab, it will bring you to an application form. And we will review that and we'll let you know if you look like a candidate and then you'll go on the wait list and then we'll email you details as they come out. 
but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this project and I'm, I'm working like crazy right now, uh, to get it finished. See, um, I, I knew I liked you. This is like, this is the, again, the, the only rational way that conclusion that I've come to as it relates to training is like, pick the exploitative fruit. Pareto principle it out. 80% of your winnings come from 20% of the players. And then from there, you know, you just need to like toggle your play style on and off when you're playing against like really strong players and then really weak players. Like you need to just play very exploitatively against the weak and then not so exploitably more GTO against the strong players. Like that's the only, that's the only rational thing that I've conclusion that I've come to. So I'm glad to see that like, you know, you're <laughs> that that's the way that you're constructing because I would be very sad and have to rethink things if you were going about it like a totally different way than I, I thought would be best. Yeah, that's always the progression that made the most sense to me. Just yeah. get the exploitative win rate and then focus on learning how to balance your strategy. Right. That's why like all my courses right now are targeting fish specifically because like that's where most of your money comes from. Like you can you can believe whatever you want to believe. The truth is most of your money, most of your win rate comes playing against these specific players and if you're not maximally exploiting them, you're just leaving money on the table. Mhm. Yeah, I feel like that's sort of an open secret in poker for some reason that like people just spend most of their time studying how to play against regs when I think people think they know how to max exploit fish, but they, they don't. They don't know how to. <laughs> no, they don't it's, at all. It's, I mean, it took us a lot of time to come up with our max exploit strategy that we use against fish. Um, it's not as as simple as you would think it is to, no. to figure out exactly, you know, what is the best way to maximize value and, and to maximize your non-showdown EV when you have a bluff against a fish, what are the best lines to bluff in? Um, it took a lot of work, but you know, we, we've accomplished that now and I'm, now I'm moving on to more nuanced things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to fall under the impression that like, you're winning money against fish and like, that's good enough. And like, it's easy to find winning strategies <laughs> against a fish. That's like really easy. It's much more difficult to find like the best winning strategies against fish specifically. That requires more work than you would imagine. And the, the strategies and the solutions are not always super intuitive, even for people that have been playing poker for, you know, most of their adult lives. So, uh, if you could erect a billboard, Every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does your billboard say, Pat Howard? Poker billboard? Hmm. Doesn't have to be about poker, but it's on the way to the casino either way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have like a, a, a simple answer to this. I, I tweeted something which may be a little bit too long for a billboard, but it was the first thing that I came that I, that came to mind when you asked me this question, which was um, if fish just learned how to play pre-flop correctly, 80% of regs would be out of a job overnight. <laughs> and I think that's kind of a, an important concept to, to accept, even though it's an uncomfortable truth. Um, a lot of players would have difficulty like identifying fish if they played correctly pre-flop, let alone exploiting them. And um, yeah, it's not that hard to learn preflop. So hopefully they don't do it. 
Oh, man, uh, yeah, it's like it's the thing that like sets up everything else. It's like the base of operation. It's a foundation that you like base most of your post flop strategies on, and like people just assume that they've got pre flop down and they never go back to look at it. It's like it boggles my mind that like pros don't invest the time to just get it down pat because like it's a learnable thing. I have a billboard actually. I would say. Betting for information isn't a thing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good one too. Um, <laughs> I, I tweeted the other day that like um, thinning the field doesn't make you more money. Like thickening the field does. Because like, what do you mean by thickening? The field? <laughs> like, you know how people are like, I raised a fifteen at one two playing live so that I can get it either heads up or against two players. Like that's like the goal or their job, right? When the reality is like. Yeah, if you have aces and you raise whatever and nine people call you, you're going to win less often, but you're going to win more money over the long term. So like, don't be afraid to take flops five and six ways and just learn how to play multi-way instead of trying to like thin the field down to heads up or three ways or whatever it is. Gotcha. Anyway, it's just it's another one of those things that I hear people saying all the time like oh you want to thin mm-hmm. the field and it's like do you really like i would rather have all the whales play every single hand personally <laughs> yeah all right man so to wrap up where can the chasing poker greatness audience learn more about you on the World Wide web um you can follow me on twitter i'm at mobius poker m-o-b-i-u-s poker and i have a link to my run at once blog there which has been pretty popular over the last couple of years since I started it. I write mostly about like the logistical side of poker um, as a career. And like more recently, I've even like just written about like the social aspects of poker and just like what a strange job it is. Uh, so if you've never read that, check it out. You might enjoy it. And um, yeah, follow me on Twitter for updates on this new course that I'm releasing. Hopefully, I'll be releasing it by end of summer. Cool, man. And by the time this episode goes live, it'll be almost September. So it'll probably be pretty close coinciding with when this goes live. And, you know, you're one of the best in the business, one of the best trainers, coaches, thinkers in the game, both you and your brother. And yeah, it's just, it's a pleasure. It's an honor knowing you guys much better. You've provided immense value in my own career and my own life. And, uh, you know, I'll have to have you on again for a round two sometime in the near future. Yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you having me on and I'd love to come back sometime. Take care, man. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.